You're listening to Mockingbird. This recording was made at the 8th Annual Mockingbird Conference, held at Calvary St. George's Church in New York City. Well, I'm about to start talking, so we better pray real fast. Um, Father, we are so grateful for this wonderful conference. I am so deeply, genuinely grateful for Mockingbird and everything that that they're doing, and what a fantastic ministry this is. And I'm very humbled to be part of this, so we just thank you for that. Lord, we pray, we, we acknowledge all of us coming in here that there's not one of us here that's really worthy to give some kind of wisdom to someone else uh, because we're flawed, not only in our understanding but in our will and in our reasons for doing anything and so Lord we just come humbly and ask that you will speak for the mystery of the gospel to us and that you'll touch us and speak to us through your Holy Spirit and show us new fresh living beautiful insights into things that we need to know and help me Lord to make it clear that I can speak to to make plain what what kind of you've got for me to say. So we thank you for this time and pray that we'll be tremendously blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Um, so I'm Jim McNeely. I've been doing some magic tricks at the conference. I hope you guys are enjoying that. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about, uh, uh, you know, perhaps overworked uh idea of law and gospel, but part of the um, reason why they called Mockingbird Ministries Mockingbird Ministries is because mockingbirds uh, repeat the same sounds over and over and over and over again, and you know, I've been accused of preaching the same sermon over and over and over again, just because I always preach, uh, I was accused of preaching sloppy agape over and over and over again, like you know, you're exactly right, and I'm going to use that term. <laughs> Thank you. Sloppy agape, I love it. <laughs> so anyway, we're uh, talking about uh, Zen and the art of law and gospel. First, a little bit about some uh, what I'm doing these days. My wife, my fabulous wife, Betty, and I have planted a church called Bread and Wine Fellowship. And um, uh, we're having the time of our lives and it's not denominational because it's kind of an experiment to see if we just absolutely base a church completely on scandalous grace and truly based on just the gospel of Christ and him crucified and resurrected how is that going to play out and there's some people that have come in expecting a certain kind of thing and a certain kind of standpoint, a certain kind of experience, and they truly become offended. <laughs> and, you know, like you can't just say this over and over and that's it, right? Like, uh, eventually you have to tell us what to do. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, well, there's lots of other places you can go for that, right? We are here to declare a scandalous grace. And so I'm determined. And we're seeing it just be 
a wonderful, a beautiful experience. It's still, you know, very small, but we've also determined that numbers don't matter. What matters is the gospel and having people that are there because they love that and they understand their need for grace. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've written this book called Grace and Community, and part of this is to do an experiment to see if you can actually build a church based on the principle of grace and community, where you're not saying, well, Jesus loves us, and so we're going to use that as a kind of baseball bat to beat you into forcing you to love each other, right? He's our example. He loved us. You ought to be loving. Instead, finding a grace-based approach to saying, you know, the key is really belief. Belief that I am worth God dying for and belief that you're worth God dying for and to see that it is the blood of Jesus which defines you, not my expectations of standards of excellence and justice and behavior that define you. So we're seeing wonderful things uh, just a couple of examples for one thing my wife betty she's a living example of just every time i come to some spiritual breakthrough i feel like she's standing there like well i've been doing that since i was seven years old you didn't know that <laughs> you know um there's a, a woman living in her house and and you know the beautiful thing about my wife is she loves grace and she loves the gospel and she's just as crazy and radical about it as me, maybe even more. And, um, you know, when people say, well, doesn't that just give people license to sin when you preach that much grace? I say, you know, have you met my wife? Right? Because she gets up these days, there's a, a woman living with us that uh, she was in jail for a while for, she had gotten uh, second DUI so she's not allowed to drive and she has some other problems and um, so Betty wakes up every single day at about 3.30 in the morning and then drives her 30 minutes to her job and back because she insists to help her and so that this woman isn't tempted to drive herself and put herself at risk of going back to jail even longer, right? And she's never said a word about it. She wouldn't be horrified to see me explaining this to a group of people because she's very joyous about it, very happy she loves it, right? Um, we have another woman that's living with us. And actually, the church is also where we live. It's like a parsonage built onto a sanctuary. And it's right in the middle of the heart of Bellingham, Washington, which is the most beautiful place on earth. It's a wonderful place, but we're right there. And uh, anyway, this uh, woman, uh, wow, she's got a crazy history of her, uh, her mother was a stripper and would bring men home and let her let the men come and pay to take liberties with her daughter, right? Which was her, that's how she grew up. And uh, now she struggles with alcohol, not always successfully. And, but she has a tremendous joy about the gospel. She also has, she'll, she is taking care of all the gardening outside. And every time somebody passes by, she has this zeal about it now about like, you know, are you going to church? Do you know Jesus? You should come in here because this is awesome, right? And we've had so many people coming to the church because of her and because we're not willing to say her current problems 
her, her inconsistency with her victory over alcohol is what defines her membership in the church. What defines her membership is that the Lord tremendously loves her, right? And it's really making a difference. It's amazing. So, so many stories I could tell, but um, the church really is just this fantastic kind of experiment to me to see if grace and community can really work itself. How can you really do this? And I, I think that you really can. It's not without its problems, but it's, it's, it's been wonderful. Okay, so the Zen of the gospel. What am I talking about here? Uh, okay, my favorite, actually my very favorite episode of The Simpsons, and I would play the clip, but I, I can't get internet in here, and I only had an internet kind of clip. Um, so I'm just going to read the script here. Lisa says, I want you to shut off the logical part of your mind. Bart says, okay. <laughs> Lisa says, embrace nothingness. Bart, you got it. <clears throat> Become like an uncarved stone. Done. <laughs> Bart, you're just pretending to know what I'm talking about. True. <laughs> well, it's very frustrating. I'll bet. <laughs> then they, they're sitting on top of a mountain, and Lisa says, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Piece of cake, Lisa. <laughs> it's like, no, Bart, it's a 3,000-year-old riddle with no answer. It's supposed to clear your mind of conscious thought. Bart says, no answer. Lisa, listen up. <laughs> and Lisa says, well, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around, does it make a sound? Absolutely. <laughs> but Bart, how can sound exist if there's no one there to hear it? And Bart gets huge saucer eyes and goes, ooh. <laughs> so I think that I find in my experience that the way that people hear the gospel message is very similar to this. Because you say, Jesus died for your sins. Like, I know, right? What do you do? Right? Everybody knows that, don't they? It's like, yeah. That's just like Bart saying, okay, when, you know, you know what I mean? It's not sticking somewhere in there. It's like, well, that means that you have eternal, eternal life. Yeah, heard that one too. <laughs> it's like, that means that no matter what you've done in your past, whatever sin is in your life right now, or what sins you may ever do in the future, period, that the death of Christ for you is completely satisfied justice for you forever, and there will never be one thing that could be uncovered in a hundred thousand years in heaven that God forgot about somewhere that hasn't been sufficiently dealt with by the cross. Wow. I'm really saved. I'm really safe. I'm really okay. I'm actually in the favor of God. The blood of Jesus works for me when I need it to. It's like, yeah, it doesn't work for habitual sin, though. It's like, really? So the one thing that really trips you up, the one sin that you really are weak about, the one thing that is your real problem is the one thing God withholds forgiveness for. That's awesome. 
That, that's just great. Well, thanks a lot, God, for forgiving me of everything except the thing I actually need forgiveness for. Right? So, does that mean you can just be habitual and habitual and habitual? Well, you know what? Doesn't it? It does. Knowing that it's the only door you've got out of your habitual thing. To know that your eventual thing is not the barrier anymore. It's your lack of faith in Christ where you need that. That is the thing that's your barrier with the favor of God. All right. So, you know, and I also talk to people and use the word grace a lot. Right? And people talk to me like uh, there was a woman that had been staying with us in... She would come in and stay for a few days, and then she would leave, and then she'd come in for a few days, and then she would leave. And this went on for just many, many months. And when she was with us, then she would like go walking around with some of her old cronies and you know, take drugs and just, you know, we were just acting as an enabler for her. And she, so we're like, you know, we're not gonna do this anymore. This isn't helping you, it's not helping us, it's kind of freaking out the people we are helping, and we can't do this. Just like, well. I thought this was a grace place, you know? It's like, oh, you mean you thought grace meant um, that it's nicer advice for you. That's what you thought grace means. You thought grace means that, that we're supposed to just say everything is good. In other words, you want to, to, to redefine, you still want to be under law, but you want us to redefine law so it just is all-inclusive and allows everything except certain things that you don't like. Like if we say, you can't live here. You know what I mean? So anyway, you know, uh, it's not like there's barriers to that because she can certainly come and stay with us, but we're not going to enable her sin. And, and you know, that's where it gets really sticky of working out grace and community because we're still in communication with her. We still want to help her. We want to get her the help that we're not able to give her, all of that. <laughs> Anyway, um, so I've had some talks with uh, different people along these lines, and, um, you know, I, I was talking with a fellow about how in the past I've been to some of these marriage uh, seminars, you know, kind of five steps to an easier, uh, better marriage. And I'm like, you know, none of that stuff works. And it's like, well, why not? I think it's helpful. Why not? Why, why shouldn't you give people helpful advice about how they can improve their marriage. I'm like, well, here's my experience. I went to a marriage seminar with my wife, and the guy was really entertaining and really fun, and it was like a comedy show almost. It was really great. And his whole thing was men are clams and women are crowbars, right? So he's going on, it's like, yeah, you know, that really rings true. I'm kind of a clam, you know? Betty's a crowbar, you know? She's like, how's your day? Good. So what'd you do? Worked. Like, can you tell me more? Not really. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, the guy's suggestion was, well, what the men should do is carry around a notebook and keep notes so that when she asks you, then you can remember what happened and then you can tell her, right? Yeah, right? So, I mean, my, my kind of thought was, like hell, I'm going to carry a notebook around and keep notes 
And what are you doing all day long just so I can, you know, get talky with my, you know, <laughs> wife? I mean, I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. But then it became this dynamic, and it became an issue because it became this dynamic where I was dreading to go home because here I am, a clam, right? And I'm supposed to, I've been diagnosed, right? And so I'm supposed to, like, be better at prying the clam open, you know? I'm not supposed to be so clammy, right? And then I, I can't help but view my wife as a crowbar. So I'm going home and I'm expecting her to be this crowbar, right? And that's how I start viewing her. It's like, oh my God, I, I just, this is the worst thing ever, <laughs> you know? And, um, and, and I was talking with this friend about this and it's like, you know what the problem was? Is it was a Christian marriage seminar, but it was Christless, it was crossless, it was bloodless, it was merciless, it was basically godless, it was all law. Even though it was friendly, funny, nice, and helpful, it's not gospel. And at the end of the day, the only thing we really need is mercy. That's what we need, we really need mercy. Um, the law is like getting an x-ray, it's diagnosis, right? And, and just to picture this, you're this guy, and somehow you've got scissors stuck in your throat, right? So you go in and you go, man, I kind of got like a sore throat, <sighs> you know? <laughs> you know, and the doctor takes the x-ray and goes, you ignorant fool, you swallowed scissors, you know? Come back when you've got the scissors out of there and we'll talk to you. It's like, what? I don't need the diagnosis. I know something's wrong with me. I mean, it may help you fix me, right? But I don't need just to know that I've got a problem. I came to the doctor because I need solution. And that is the gospel, the gospel solution. When I was going through, you know, uh, in our past, some really terrible, like we almost got divorced kind of marriage problems, I had a pastor say, well, you know, the problem is, you're just going to have to learn how to love her. And I'm like, duh! Oh, I'm so glad you're here to tell me what I ought to because I didn't know that that verse was in there somewhere. You know, I didn't realize that I was supposed to be, I thought I was supposed to be hating her. It didn't dawn on me that I'm supposed to be loving her. Thank you. You know, what is the net effect of that? It made me hate him and her. Okay? Because it's gospelless. It's, it's, it's graceless. The only thing that really works to help our relationships is to believe in Jesus. That his blood and, uh, really works. That his mercy is genuinely real for each other. You know? All right, so, um, so, you know, if I was married to someone and, you know, I would say, you know, I do, I really do have a pretty unconditional love for my wife. I mean, you know, I really love her and I know she's got some flaws, but, you know, we really, we are really committed to each other, you know? But then I start finding that every time I turn around, she's got a knife and she's trying to murder me. 
or, or I'm always scared that she's poisoning my food. <laughs> and, and you're like, well, I am unconditional about loving my wife, but I'm not that unconditional. I mean, that's crazy land. If she's trying to murder me, the relationship is over. Right? I mean, we're talking about murdering here. Okay? All right? The thing about Jesus is that even while they were in the act of killing him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So his love, his commitment to forgiveness, his view of people was not swayed even in the face of betrayal and denial and murder, right? Even when it affected him personally. And so you look in the, uh, uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount and he, and he says, well, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. And we all go, Jesus, <laughs> that's great, but that's impossible. I mean, who's going to turn the other cheek, you know? Well, you know, Jesus didn't just turn the other cheek. He went all the way to the cross and still forgave and still loved, you know, and even knew that was what was going to happen. And then here's the thing that I've really come to be very excited about is that not only is he just this really nice guy that persists in forgiveness and persists in loving us and persists in relationship toward us in his heart, but he is supernaturally persistent. He, he has resurrection behind his persistence. So even if your morals are so bad that you would kill and murder the only one single Messiah that's ever going to exist in history, which is a pretty bad sin, <clears throat> he resurrects to persist in love. So it's not just a nice sentiment. It's not like he's just a nice guy. He's got resurrection power to come back. And here's the thing that's really been hitting me about this lately, thinking about this, is as soon as he resurrected, what's the first thing that he said? Go quickly and tell my disciples. You know, if it was me rising from the dead, I would be going and like floating over Jerusalem to the, the uh, uh, you know, the Sanhedrin and the powers that be and say, you guys are so wrong. <laughs> you know, check it out, guys, because here I am. You know, tried to kill me, back in line, hey, man. But you know what the first thought on his mind was? It was the disciples, because the resurrection is not simply to prove that his death for our sins worked. The resurrection is all about a supernatural level of persistent relationship. And so we sit here and think, well, if I do this certain habitual sin or I do this certain thing, you know, you know, it may jeopardize my relationship with Christ, you know. It's like, are you kidding me? If you murdered him, he'd raise from the dead and he'd come to your locked room where you're cowering away in fear and he would find you. And you know what he would do? He would declare mercy to you. 
He intends to make you supernaturally glad. <laughs> you know? So he wants to come despite into wherever your most secret, locked away, sinful, worst, shameful, rotten parts of your life are, and come into that place and express resurrection love and supernatural persistence of relationship. So, to, to, he, he has no intention of cutting things off with you. We think that he bears the law, and this is kind of what the law ends up being in, in, the, in the nature of a relationship. The law stands, it's this standard, which is like a guillotine ready to sever the ties if you don't live up to what I expect you to live up to. And Jesus says, there is no guillotine. Even if you try to sever a relationship, because that's kind of what sin really is, you know, I am going to persist. God is stubborn about loving you. Very stubborn. Resurrection stubborn about expressing love to you over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's what he's about because he loves us. It's crazy, you know? Isn't that wonderful? Wow. You know, but, but what we always kind of want to do is we want to water down the gospel. You know? We want to say, well, my gosh, Romans 6 woman. You know? Sanctification. Lots of sanctification. You know? You know, well, you can't, you know, you're not saying that, you know, you, you can just have freedom and you can just do whatever you, you want to do now. Jesus for, just forgives you of everything, right? You're not genuinely free. You know, are you saying that we should sin all the more? That grace might increase? Well, people want to solve that question and answer that question by going back to Romans 3 and watering down the gospel. They want to say, well, it doesn't really mean that you're really forgiven. It doesn't mean that you're really accepted. It doesn't mean that you're really justified only by faith in the free gift of salvation through Christ. It means that you were kind of forgiven of past stuff, but you better not do anything in the future because we're not really sure about that. <laughs> you know, and, and so, you know, that's how people work it out. And so what they do is they completely undermine grace. They completely undermine the power of the blood of Jesus to really and truly save you. What they say is, well, God will forgive you every place except the places that you actually need him to forgive you. Because God is a schizophrenic monster that secretly hates you. <laughs> you know? And so that's evangelism, right? Um, we're going to offer you forgiveness so you can leave off your fun, partying, free lifestyle and through grace, you know, <laughs> enter into this like restrictive, super moral, you know, horrible lifestyle of pretense and rottenness. And that's God. <laughs> and, and to make matters worse, you're supposed to be joyful about it. <laughs> It's like, really? Can I just go to hell? Because that sounds a lot more fun. You know? Well, that isn't how it works. 
In fact, what Paul is saying in Romans 6 is, you know, we've died with Christ. That means I have ceased from my self-salvation project. I have ceased from trying to establish my own significance by my works and efforts. I give up. I'm dead. I can't justify myself. I, the only thing the works of the law can do is show me that I'm rotten. I can't change my rottenness, you know? So I, I give up, I'm dead. I'm really dead. I'm not dead in the sense of like, oh, I need to die more and I need to, uh, you know, I need to work on my death to myself. It's like, <laughs> what? That's not death. Do you not understand death means you're like dead, right? Like it, it didn't work, right? You're dead. All right, so anyway, you know, in this, I'm going to just briefly delve into some of the objections, because I get objections. I don't know if you guys ever deal with this. I get objections. People are like, well, look, man, you know, all of that sounds awesome, but what about this? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, you idiot. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor codists, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So there you go. You're wrong. You're wrong. Like, well, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. Cherry Picker, but let's read the immediate context. All right? Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed. Not you should try to wash. You were washed. You were sanctified. What? That's another one of those. You keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me. What? He's not talking about that list before, though. Oh, really? It's in the direct context. Well, what is he talking about? All things are not lawful. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful, or all things are not profitable. So it is no longer a question of your justification because you have been washed completely through faith in Christ. And, you know, in context here, he's talking to the Corinthian church. And he's talking to people that are involved in gross, immoral, sexual sin. And these are the people that he's saying, you know, you were washed. You were sanctified. And he has to go on and warn them against sexual immorality, as if they're in danger of doing it, even though they've been washed. Do you understand that? The nature of our washing isn't that we have been completely freed altogether from all Romans 7, I seem to still sin, why do I still do the things I don't want to do? The nature of our washing is we have a completely different perspective on how the entire universe works as a human being now. Because it isn't that I have to prove that I'm lovable to God, it's that he has established that he has loved me with an everlasting, unbreakable love, and I am washed clean of being a self-salvation person. You know? So, you know, that's how it works. Here's another one. What about this, Mr. Gracie Pants? <laughs> For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment in the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Ha! You know, now I've got you, you know, you antinomious ass. <laughs> you know, wh what about that? I mean, how are you going to twist that one? It's like, you know, I'm so sorry, Mr. Cherry Picker, but again, we're going to read the immediate context. And I am not a Bible scholar. So this is stupid stuff I'm bringing up, okay? You know, I'm not parsing out the Greek and all this stuff, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I love that. I really envy people that have real scholar chops. I mean, I mean, and I'm so jealous. I don't, and I know that. But he says, uh, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? What is he talking about? You know, the book of Hebrews, you guys probably know this. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews. Okay? <laughs> In the Hebrews were still wrestling with the idea that they were still supposed to do animal sacrifices and that there was still value in uh, uh, justificatory value in the slaughter of animals for uh, the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> and he's saying, you know, as much as you cling to that, you're saying the blood of Jesus is not better than the blood of animals. And, and however obscure a point you think that may be, that's the point he's making in the book of Hebrews. So he's talking to Hebrews and going, listen, man, you need to give this up. You know, you need to trust in Christ alone and not in animal sacrifices anymore. You know, and, and as much as people today say and take that verse right before and say, listen, if you don't live up to this, God's going to yank the carpet right out from under you. It's like, you know what? You're saying that it isn't the blood of Jesus plus nothing which saves me. You're saying it's the blood of Jesus plus behavior X which saves me. And what you're saying in that case is behavior X is a bigger deal than the blood of Jesus. Right? And you're saying that because you do behavior X, you can lose it. You can be no longer in the good graces of God. And so you're saying that your behavior trumps the blood of Jesus. You know, my belief says I'm not willing to say anything I could do could be bigger than the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for me. Nothing. You know? And, and so I think when people say, well, your behavior can trump the blood of Jesus, they're trampling his blood underfoot by saying you can't be saved that way. You have to behave. It's like, well, you know, that's not working for me. And I'll tell you something. I've had, I mean, part of the reason why I'm standing here, I've had horrendous struggles with deeply seated habitual sins that I just, like, I just thought I could never get past. And it's like, you know what? Until I came to a place where I realized that the Lord really loves me despite that, and that all of these more esoteric issues were actually far more important than crass, veneer, behavioral kind of, you know, thin holiness, I could never get anywhere with it. 
you know? <clears throat> so it's a belief that he loves me. And so I've come to the conclusion that belief in Christ actually is the transformation. Right? Everyone's like, I, I mean, I've been in a church that was just the big deal was if this church stands for anything, it stands for uh, transformed lives. And so everyone's like, yeah, am I transformed? <laughs> I, I just sinned yesterday and it's not working, but yeah, right? It's like, what a crock. You know, that just leads to, like, you don't even know what you have to do to measure up to that, you know? Well, how does transformation work? You know what? It works just like that little story I told. Maybe it doesn't look like I've transformed at all, but if I believe that God in heaven truly, eternally has saved me and loves me to the uttermost, and that I've been saved to the uttermost, guess what? It changes the way I sin even because I know that the Lord persists supernaturally resurrection level persists toward me that he loves me over and over and over and that in the end I know that his persistence will persist longer than the persistence of my habit and that's a very big deal so I know God's going to win over me you know um and then finally, this is such a big deal. This is the point of uh, the uh, Grace and Community book um, that I hope everyone will read. Um, is that this kind of belief is the only thing that establishes true, authentic, deep relationship. Right. So I'm going to read this. This is right out of 1 John 1. And, and, and listen to it from with gospel ears right i mean it's the it, it's amazing how this comes alive if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness we lie and do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin if we say that we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the thing is, if we base our, our trust on the blood of Jesus together, we have this basis for going really honest and deep with our, our, our relationships. Because I can, I, can, I can let loose about the things that I'm ashamed of. We're not walking on eggshells trying to prove we're right because we've already been proven right because of the blood of Jesus. So we have nothing to fear from each other anymore. The worst thing's been taken care of. You know, if you think about it, when we take communion together, we're all admitting that we're murderous cannibals. Right? And that Jesus himself is saying, you know what? I know if I offer you free grace, you're just going to run with it and sin all the more. Well, here I am. Kill me. Eat me up. Use me. 
And I will express resurrection love through that place. You know? So we all come as ravenous sinners to the table. And we partake of Christ, and he is the one who transforms through resurrection love by simply acknowledging the depth of our sin together. You know? And that's how we have relationship. And I've seen this work so beautifully, not only in my marriage, um, but with key relationships with people in my church and uh, even at work. I mean, it, it, it's, it's wonderful. And the thing that it allows you to do, is a, this is my last, last thing, it allows you to see the transformation, visible transformation of people in relationships it's not something that you're going to see, and you have to be okay with that. Because you know what? If you sat, I promise you, I've tried it. If you go sit for 30 whole minutes and you watch a tree, even a sequoia, you know, and you watch it and you find some vantage point, you try to say, I swear, I'm going to sit here and watch this until I see visible evidence of growth. You'll never see it. I think people change just like that. Because real change means that they're not just performing virtuous behaviors because they fear the consequences and they have to be coerced from fear into it. You know? Genuine virtue is a virtue that you love from the heart and you don't even need a medal or to be celebrated for it. It's become play. That's real virtue, you know? And that kind of virtue comes very slowly to people. And if you demand it, it's no longer play. And it's not going to be genuine. But if you come into it without demand in the relationship, which grace allows you, then people have the chance in the invisible places to really change in beautiful ways. Not just ways that we demand of each other, but in ways that are genuine and loved and real. And unless there is the freedom to allow that to happen super, super slowly, it's not going to happen at all. You'll never see it. So we're the people who are allowed to be failures with each other and to offend each other and to allow each other the space to fail and to allow each other the space to grow very, very slowly, right? Slow change is the real change.